0: So we uh, continue talking about the wonder of grace, and uh, I was wondering this week, uh, I was trying to think what the best gift is that I've ever been given, and uh, I brought with me the best gift uh, that I've ever been given, and I want you to to see it. This is the the best gift I've ever been given, and uh, it was knitted for me, and uh, it used to fit me. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you why this is one of the best gifts I've ever been given. It's because my mum knitted it for me. And, uh, yeah, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, I can't bear or bring myself to throw it away. And uh, so it takes up uh, wardrobe space. We don't have a huge wardrobe, and so periodically a little bit of pressure is exerted to potentially clean out the wardrobe, but I refuse to throw it away. And that is because uh, it has great sentimental value to me, obviously. And you can see it's all pretty worn now. Uh, my mum knitted this for me when I was uh, a teenager. Uh, and she wasn't a great knitter, I think it's fair to say. And it took her so long that she had to keep adding bits to it because I was growing faster than she could knit. And so the sleeves had to get longer and the, the, the bit here had to get longer. And, and it took her quite a number of years <laughs> to complete But I think this is one of the best gifts I've ever been given. And it means a lot to me. And it means a lot to me for a few reasons. One, of course, is that she did it for me. And it was a real labor of love for her because she didn't enjoy doing it very much, I don't think. I think she thought it was a great idea until she got uh, about this far down when she realized it wasn't going to be. And, of course, I mean, many of you will know my mum isn't uh, with us anymore. She died a few years ago. And, of course, therefore, it has even more significance to me as a, a gift that she gave now, I'm going to ask you just to think for a moment, what is the best gift that you have ever been given? What's the best gift? I'm not going to ask you to shout out. Everybody got a bit excited this morning when I did this at 9.15. They all start shouting out the answers. Uh, no, I don't want you to shout them out. I just want you to think for a minute. What is the best gift that you've ever been given? Now, this thing that you've got in your mind right now, I am willing to bet. If I were a betting man, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that the thing you're thinking about right now is not the most expensive gift you've ever been given. I bet it's not the most expensive gift you've ever been given. I'd be willing to to lay a fair amount of money down on the fact that it's perhaps not the biggest gift you've ever been given. And if you're like me, you love big presents. They're the only presents that really count, actually, are the big ones. But I bet the thing you're thinking of right now is not the biggest gift you've ever been given. And my suspicion is it's probably not a material possession. Or certainly not something that you would value as a material possession. And I wonder if the thing that you're thinking about stirs something in you. Maybe even stirs a sense of wonder. See, this, uh, this jumper uh, does it for me. It's uh, usually hidden away at the back of a wardrobe, but when it does make an appearance, it always stirs in me uh, a sense of wonder, of remembering and of being grateful and thankful and, and remembering my mum and that she would do that for me because she loved me. And I'd be willing to think some of the best gifts that you've been ever been given are something like that. Something with some kind of significance or meaning attached to them. And through this series we've been trying to inspire ourselves to move to a place of awe and wonder, remembering God and who he is and what he's done. We've been trying, almost literally, to allow God to take our breath away at the wonder of the things he's given to us. We started off by looking at the things that steal that sense of wonder from us. The busyness of our lives, the stress, the anxiety, and so on. Things that can steal the sense of wonder from us. Then we looked at the wonder of creation. Last week we looked together at the wonder of relationships. And today we look together at the wonder of grace. Grace. And if you missed any of those and you want to catch up with them, you can go to our website and you can download MP3 recordings of all of those talks to listen to them if you missed any of them. And I'd really encourage you to do that. But this grace thing that we're finishing this series with today is God's greatest gift to you and to me. It's the absolute best thing that God could have given. And it should take our breath away. And actually, the truth is, if God never did anything else for us or in us or with us, the gift of grace would be enough. Now, of course, God does work in us and through us and often give us other things, too. But if God never did anything else for us, the gift of grace would be enough because it's his greatest gift to us and it's his labor of love. And uh, we're going to look together at a passage where Paul, one of Jesus' first followers, describes grace. And uh, I got it printed up for you. So in your bulletins this morning, you should have had, as you came in, given to you a piece of paper like this. that so has got this passage on that we're going to use. And a few reasons why I wanted it typed up. One is because there are going to be eight characteristics of grace that I'm going to pull out, pull out from this passage. And I want you to be able to follow them. And so they've helpfully been numbered one to eight on the passage. The second reason is I want you to be able to take this home with you and stick it somewhere so that you can be reminded of the gift of grace. If you haven't got one or you didn't get one on the way in, uh, then you can get one from the table on the way out. There's even one down on my chair over there. that Somebody can pinch if they want to. Uh, I'm going to keep this one because I need the answers to the eight characteristics of grace that we're about to talk about. There's probably some more out on the table. And so this is the passage, and it's from Paul writing to a group of people in a place called Ephesus, and it's from Ephesians chapter 2, and he says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're going to look at eight characteristics of this God's greatest gift, the gift of grace. And what I'm going to try and do as we pull out these eight characteristics is to help us understand... Something about uh, grace. Help us understand something about grace. And then at the end of the talk, we'll do something to help us experience and encounter grace. But this first bit is about understanding it. And the first thing we need to understand grace is that it is completely undeserved. And this is point one on your sheet. Verses one to three, uh, Paul talks how completely and utterly we don't deserve God's grace. We fall so far short of God's perfect plan. If you're like me, and I suspect you are, you do things sometimes that you shouldn't. Or you don't do things that you should. Or you think thoughts about people that perhaps you know you shouldn't be thinking. Or you act and behave in a selfish manner. God would call those sin. And all of us give in from time to time to our sinful nature. And follow, as Paul says, its desires and thoughts. And because God is pure and holy, sin is an abomination to him. And so really, as people who do sin and do things we shouldn't, we are subject, or we should be subject, to God's anger, to his wrath, as Paul describes it. But instead, God chooses to give us grace. But we don't deserve it. In fact, as Paul points out, the opposite is true. And yet, here is the second characteristic of grace. It's because of his great love for us, that he gives it to us. We don't deserve God's grace, but because God loves us, he gives us this gift. Now, particularly in my teenage years, I used to upset my mum quite a lot by doing things that I shouldn't or not doing things that I should. And so really I didn't deserve from her a gift. But because she loved me, she gave me this gift and the same is true of God because he loves us he wants to lavish upon us the gift of grace the fourth sorry the third characteristic of grace it makes us alive with christ Elsewhere, the Bible says that the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is available to us. Just like Jesus, we can be raised, raised up out of the depths of our lives, out of the difficulties and the sadnesses we encounter, and out of the sinful patterns that we might be in. We can be lifted up, raised up through the gift of God's grace. And grace makes us truly alive. It's kind of difficult to explain, but Jesus said that one of the things he'd come to do was to give life in all its fullness... Life in all its fullness, accepting and receiving the gift of grace, truly liberates us to live life in all its fullness. The fourth thing, grace saves us. In verse 5 it says, it is by grace you have been saved. Grace saves us, it frees us, it liberates us, it sets us free from guilt and shame and fear and assures us of God's love and his presence with us. Grace saves us. The fifth thing, and we return to this idea of being raised up, as Paul says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. God promises us through the gift of grace a seat with Jesus in heaven forever. Grace assures us of eternal life with God in heaven. Sixth thing. Grace is the outworking of God's great kindness to us in Jesus. Paul says in verse 7, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. How do we know God loves us? Sometimes people ask this of somebody you can't see. They say, Well, we can't see God, so how do we know he loves us, and how do we know he really exists? And the answer to that question is the cross, always the cross. We know God loves us because Jesus was prepared to go to the cross. And God was prepared to allow that to happen. That's his great kindness to us. And the cross is a historically attestable fact. Huge amounts of evidence for it. Historians of the day recorded it. That's how we know God exists and that's how we know he loves us. Because Jesus went to the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. That's how we know God loves us. The seventh thing, grace cannot be earned. Verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. It is a gift of God. Grace is a gift, not the result of good works. It cannot be earned. It is freely given. And this fact of grace sets Christianity apart from virtually all the major world religions. Other religions in the world would say human beings have to do something to earn acceptance or love from their God or gods. Christianity says there is nothing we can do. It is completely undeserved, but it is given to us freely. Nothing we do earn God's love. God just loves us. There was nothing I could do to earn my mother's love. She just loved me. There is nothing we can do to earn God's love. Nothing we can do to gain acceptance from God. No works or rules or laws that earn us God's love. It is free and it is a gift and it is lavished upon us just because God loves us. But here, And this is the final thing. Grace results in something. Verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And this is the last characteristics of grace. It works. It does something. It produces something. It results in something. Because we have received grace, it should mean that we want to do the works that God calls us to. Now, I really want you to understand the difference. There's a difference between working to earn love or earn grace and working because you have received already the gift of grace. Do you understand the difference? Because this is really significant that we grab a hold of. God has great things for us to do. But it's not the things that we do to earn his love. That's already given to us. It's because we've received his love, we do the things he's calling us to do. We don't do them to somehow earn his love and recognition. And for somebody like me, of the personality type that I am, this is a very easy thing to get mixed up. That somehow I get a sense of worth from the things that I do. And so to be on the receiving end of a free gift of grace, and there is nothing I can do to make it uh, happen more, is a hard thing for somebody like me to get my head around. And I have to remind myself of this over and over again. I want to do the things that God has called me to do. But they don't earn me his love or his grace. They're already given. And it's because I've received them that I do what God is asking me to do. Does that make sense? Do you understand the difference? Because it's absolutely crucial. And it sets Christianity apart. God has freely given his grace. And there is nothing we can do to earn it. But it results in good works. So there you are. The eight characteristics of grace. It is undeserved. It is the product of love. It makes us truly alive. It saves us. It raises us up. It is the result of God's kindness. It is a gift to us and it cannot be earned. And it results in good works in us. And I wonder, as you hear those things, whether it grows in you a sense of awe and wonder that God would give this to you and to me. And I realize that these characteristics, this is knowledge. This is good for us to know. But we need to feel it too. It's all right to understand it, but we need to feel it and know that it's for us. And so in order to do that, I'm going to tell you a story. And it's the best story I know that encaptures what grace is. It comes to us straight out of the Bible, and it's the story of Jesus encountering somebody. And it's the best story, I think, in the whole of Scripture for helping us understand what grace is and what it is like. And so we're going to tell that story. And I want to encourage you to close your eyes and to imagine yourself watching this story unfold. And it's a story of grace. I want you to imagine uh, a woman. And uh, to be honest, this woman's probably led a bit of a mixed life. Uh, She's probably known by people in her town and in her community as uh, a bit of a slapper, to be honest. She's been around a bit. And uh, people tend to gossip about her. She doesn't always behave very well. And on this particular day where this story is unfolding, she's with a guy, and they're in a house, and they're probably doing what they shouldn't have been doing, and they're engaging in an adulterous relationship. And suddenly, crashing through the door... Come a whole load of people, and they rush into where she is, where she and the guy are, and they grab her out of bed, and they drag her out of the house. And she's naked, and she feels utterly embarrassed and humiliated. And they beat her and slap her around a bit, and they drag her up the street, and they take her to a place, and they throw her down at the feet of a man. And she looks up at the man, and she recognizes him. And she realizes this is the man that everybody's been talking about. And his name is Jesus. And everybody in the surrounding villages have been talking about this man and what he does. She knows he's some kind of teacher, some kind of rabbi. He preaches a lot. She's even heard that he's been known to do some miracles. And she realizes now that she's in even bigger trouble than she thought she was in. Because out of the corner of her eye over to another part, She sees a crowd of people and they're all baying and pointing at her. She feels utterly humiliated and then she realises that many of them have got stones in their hand. And she remembers what the law says. And the law says that someone caught in adultery should be stoned to death. And now she's no longer humiliated, just humiliated and ashamed. But she's now terribly afraid. She realises she's about to die. She's on her hands and knees in front of Jesus. And she hears somebody say, So, Jesus, tell us, what is it that we're supposed to do with this woman? And she knows what Jesus is going to say because she knows he's a teacher of the law. And he knows, she knows, he knows the law. And she knows he's going to say, You must stone her to death because that's what the law says you should do. And so she's just kneeling there, waiting for her death sentence to be passed. And she sees the look of glee in the eyes of those people with the stones who can't wait to stone her to death. And then she realizes Jesus hasn't said anything. She looks at him and he's crouched down and he seems to be scribbling in the sand. Has no idea what he's doing. And then he draws a line. And then she hears his voice saying, alright, those of you who haven't sinned, who haven't done things that this woman has done those of you who have no sin in you you come up here and you can be the ones to cast the first stone and her heart sinks she realises this is the moment where she's going to die and then she takes a double take and she realises just what Jesus has said and she realises that there's no one there who can claim to be without sin there's no one there who hasn't fallen short in some way shape or form And a glimmer of hope begins begins to rise in her. She begins to wonder what's going to happen. And she sees people in the crowd beginning to melt away, drop their stones and walk off. And now hope is bubbling up in her heart. Maybe this isn't the day she's going to die. And then she realizes there's nobody left but her and Jesus. And she sees him reach out his hand to her and pick her up. And he hear, she hears him say to her, is there nobody here to condemn you? Then neither will I. Go home and sin no more. She realizes she's been set free. From the despair and the anxiety and the death that is about to come, she has been set free. And Jesus has absolutely refused to condemn her. Instead, he loves her and he has given her the gift of grace. And as you imagine that story, imagine that she is you and you are being given the same gift of grace. Jesus sets you free. So the challenge for us today is to receive grace afresh. For some of you, this might be the first time. We had somebody at our 9.15 service this morning who has been in church her whole life, and she is over 80 years old. She'd never heard this about grace, and she'd never received it, and she received it for the first time this morning. So if that is you, receive grace today for the first time. Maybe some of you have been Christians for ages, And you've received grace many times. Receive it again today. Take it. This is God's free gift of grace. And what I want you to imagine in your mind, whether this is the first time or the umpteenth time, imagine God standing before you with the biggest Christmas present you've ever seen. And he says, this is for you. And he gives it to you. He says, unwrap it. And you unwrap it. And this present, this gift, is overflowing. It's God's grace. And as you open it up, his grace just overflows to you. And he watches and smiles because he loves you and because he is desperate for you to have this gift. As we continue just to allow God to lavish his gift of grace upon us, we're going to listen to a song together. The race flows down.